Welcome to Fear the Boot. My name is Dan. This is Doug. And this is Wayne. Let's set our calendars back 17 years. Now, some of you probably listening to this aren't even 17 years old, which... You missed out on a lot of things. You missed out on a lot of things, not all of them good. But you did miss out on a lot of things. But 17 years ago, or over 17 years ago at this point, several months past that, is when Fear the Boot first started. And one of the common critiques of our show was that we were very focused on what we considered our staple products. FASA products in particular, and I mean the original FASA, back when they still had Battletech and Shadowrun and Crimson Skies and all of that stuff. They had their original version of the Star Trek RPG, and I think they also did the Doctor Who RPG and older versions of D&D, and we weren't really messing with a lot of the stuff that was in the whole indie movement. We weren't playing games like fiasco or games like inspectors or games like fate slash fudge and we were very set in our ways and as time moved on what happened is we started getting more and more exposed to new games mostly through our audience and particularly at conventions so we would go to like gen con or to our own convention to fear the con And people would sit down and they'd run these games for us. And we started to fall in love with them. And we started picking up copies of them and playing them. And our repertoire of games that we were playing got a whole lot more deep and a whole lot more diverse. Yeah, I joined the hobby during this time. Yeah. And when I started running campaigns in the beginning, I ran a different system and a different game for every campaign that I was running. Where I'm going with this is we were just sitting around talking about Gen Con. We were talking about me being a curmudgeon. Yes, yeah, and, <laughs> and Wayne and I were agreeing we're both curmudgeons, though we were using the word in a slightly different way. Because when Wayne first said, I think I realized the point where I became a curmudgeon, I'm like, I know what I did. I was 14 years old. <laughs> I'm not making this up. The first time that I looked in a mirror and said, I don't like young people and I'm getting too old too fast, It was not a midlife crisis. I was 14 years old. And since I didn't die at 28, that was apparently not midlife. That was the time point where I was, not those years, but that age was where I was going to McDonald's playing bingo with all of the elderly people there. Yeah. (laughs) And dude, I tell you, though, I didn't do anything quite that sad. I did nonetheless find that I was connecting mostly with older people that The friends I had that were my age tended to be old souls, right? More mature people than the average person my age. And we were not doing the things or participating in the activities that the average kids our age were doing. But the people that I connected with the most were usually much older generations. And unfortunately, they were people that are old enough that they're all now mostly deceased. Very few of the people that I considered to be close friends from my childhood or adolescence are even still alive. I think I always had a bit of that because even going back to elementary school, by the time that I went to school, I was reading and speaking at such a level that I couldn't interact with some of my people my own age. They didn't understand what I said. So I would be talking to the teachers instead of the 
my own classmates sometimes. Yeah, exactly. I, I didn't fit in with them, not emotionally, not socially, not intellectually. And I don't say this to pat myself on the back because I don't believe this made me in any way qualitatively superior to anyone. It's just more that in terms of where I was at developmentally, where my brain was at, that once again, the first time I looked in a mirror and said, I don't like kids and I'm getting too old too fast, was not at an age where I went out and bought a red sports car or some other equally kind of stereotypical sort of thing. I was 14 years old. For and me, when I start talking curmudgeon, I wasn't thinking about it from that perspective. I was thinking about it from the perspective of strong opinions and preferences and things like that. Set in your ways. That's yeah. that's the difference. Is I was talking about kind of that get-off-my-lawn mentality, whereas, Wayne, you were talking more about being set in your ways. Yeah, because when I first started gaming, I wanted to play and try everything. Yeah. And if somebody said something and it was a system that, or a setting that I normally wouldn't be that interested in, I would still jump at a chance to play it just to try it out. And now I've reached the point of there's certain genres I just don't like. And when I hear about a new game, I immediately form opinions on it instead of saying I want to try it and form an opinion. And I'm not happy with myself for that because I find myself having these conversations about things like, you know, a new system comes out and I look through it and it's like, I have a strong opinion, even though I've never played it. That's not who I want to be. I want to be more open to these ideas and try things. Yeah, I hit this point of curmudgeon in the set-in-my-way sense much more recently. This was not back when I was 14. At that point, even if I had the things I liked, even if I was not sufficiently involved in the convention scene or whatnot to be aware of some of these newer games, it's not that I wasn't open to them. I had just found things I liked, I was satisfied, but I was still open to new ideas. And goodness gracious, though it may not have been new products, we were introducing new games all the time, mostly in the form of homebrews. I love making homebrews and writing my own games and such. And so we were introducing new games all the time. And it wasn't just me. Several of the other people in the group that GM'd were also themselves introducing homebrews and games they had created or games that were maybe sort of adjacent to another game. One of the games we played a lot when we were teenagers was written by uh, a guy that we used to game with where they had been playing West End Star Wars for a while. And they had kind of reached a point where their characters power-wise were growing beyond what the universe had to offer. So this guy decided to sit down and kind of recreate a new custom universe and adjust the rules. And eventually he ended up creating his own rules and his own character sheets. And this gave rise to his own complete standalone homebrew. And we had a ton of fun playing it. The game had a lot of balance issues and whatnot, but Hey, we were young. We were having a lot of fun, but where I noticed it in my own life is about maybe three years ago. I noticed that at my job, because working in technology, things move very fast and things are moving faster all the time. Technology evolves faster and the faster technology evolves, 
the faster the next evolution of technology occurs because technology plays a role in developing technology. So, yes, there are market forces that somewhat slow it down, but overall, things are accelerating very fast. So to do what I do for a living, to stay relevant, to have any kind of a future, and I'm not old enough yet to be ready to retire or anything, I I have to get a good couple more decades out of myself. You have to keep adjusting how you think and adjusting to new technologies, learning new things, picking up new ways of thinking. You You have to maintain both that plasticity and elasticity of the brain, the ability of the brain to pick up new skills, to recover from traumas, to try new things, to go new directions. And I found that because my job allowed me to stagnate, that other parts of my brain, my overall mode of thought, was following that I was kind of horseshoeing right back to where I was of I've got what I like and therefore I'm increasingly disinterested in things that are not part of what I like. You know, I think part of it might very well be that experience is a double-edged sword. Experience gives you a chance to come in and say, I've seen this before, I know how to deal with it. Unfortunately, experience gives you the chance to come in and say, I've seen this before, that's not going to work, and here's what we need to do instead. Instead of being open to the idea that I've seen this before, it didn't work then, but things aren't the same as they were then. And I've seen that a lot in people that have been in careers for a long time, where they get so beaten down to the idea of changing things that they won't try it. Or they get so stuck in the idea of how something worked 10 years ago that they don't realize that some of the underlying technology isn't there anymore. I see it in gaming, too. People that have been in groups for so long that, you know, I pitched this idea and it didn't work. Well, how many people in your current group were in your group when you pitched that idea? Yeah. What was the mood they were in at that point in their life that they're not in now? And it's one of the things I really am kicking myself on when I realize I've let myself get to that point. I'm not open to reapproaching these ideas and retrying things. And where I used to do a new system for every campaign, now I keep going back to my safe spots. I keep going back to running Dresden. I'm doing a lot of Savage Worlds. And I've got all of these books on the shelves that I want to try and all of these other systems. But I have my comfort area where I already know it. And I can just keep going back to and pull it out easily. I think that's the part that worries me. And it worries me at the most existential level in my job because of the fact that I'm a technologist and technology continues moving forward. And I have thought about doing a career change to something like technical training or whatnot, where, yes, I would still have to learn new technologies, But my primary skill would be in my ability to speak, to organize, to present, not in my deep knowledge and my ability to problem solve within these technologies. But if I don't do that, then not adapting, not learning, not growing, getting set in my ways, being in a big buffet, but only picking up the same three items every morning, that is going to eventually push me out of a career. And 
while it hits me existentially in my job, it doesn't just bother me there. It's not the person I want to be. Yeah, I've seen people throughout my life go into old age. And when I say old age here, I'm not talking 80s. So I think you see it most sharply in people that are in their 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s. Of, you know, I'm old and I hate everything but Matlock. <laughs> but I, I think you can watch it occur as just people even go into middle age where they start to hit these comfort zones. They've got their favorite restaurants, their favorite vacation spots. You know, one of the things my dad carries on about is the fact if we ever have to put him in like a nursing home or something, we damn well better be able to keep finding him Brillo cream. Because <laughs> a, a little dab will do you. Even that, that look, even I'm too young for that one. I just am aware of its existence. But apparently if Brillo cream ever goes out of production, I'm going to have to pre-buy like three pallets <laughs> of it to keep him placated within the nursing home, which he's not in one yet. And I hope he never has to go to one. But my point being, though, that he went that way, that he's got his things that he likes, and he's not very interested in trying to learn things in a new way. But what's really worrisome about that, and I've seen this in many people, is the less interested you are in learning new modes of thought, the less able you are to do so. Let me give an example. Looping back to technology, there's something called the metaphor. All right, let me explain what the metaphor is in technology. If you go to the average website, you are expecting that you are probably going to have to create an account. All right, walk me through the process of creating an account on a website. Click to sign in, then click the button to create new account. Yep. Then put in all of your information that they really don't need even a fraction of. Nope. But you have to create a username and a password, right? And what's probably the main identifier they're going to tie that to? Email. Your email address, right? And by the way, this is all going to look about the same. A username, which occurs first. A password, which occurs second. A sign-in button. A cancel button. Maybe a remember me checkbox. You're going to expect a link right there for forgot password. And when you click Forgot Password, you're going to expect a certain series of steps. If you want to find additional things to do, like you want to look for the rest of the menu of the site that's not visible, what are you looking for? I'm looking for the sitemap. A sitemap's fair? Or a search button. Okay, you might be looking for a search button. Uh, Those three bars. The hamburger menu is what it's called. The hamburger menu. You're looking for the little three bars you click to get the bigger menu. Or maybe a little cog or gear that's going to represent the settings. Yeah. Calling for the sitemap is really aging myself. Yes. It was something we used (laughs) to use frequently before the hamburger menu became a big thing. But that's the screen metaphor. Okay. That's what you call. It's like one of those back in my day. Yeah. Exactly. That's the metaphor. So... One of the things that I'm encountering, and, and I, I had to sound like I'm being mean to my dad because I love my dad. Seriously, I was just rereading a bunch of letters he wrote me because he still writes letters. He does send emails, yes. but he also still handwrites letters. And I was rereading through some of the letters that he sent me over the years. And it was a fairly emotional moment, which is why my dad is fresh on my mind. And I recently got my parents a new TV. Well, a major thing has changed in the metaphor of how a TV works. Mm -hmm. It used to be the TV was itself 
the receiver. So it got the signal. It showed you what you wanted to watch. And if you had other devices, you just plugged them in as accessories to the TV. So you'd have the little antenna stuff that you'd unscrew, and then you'd put the little hooks over to screw in the Atari or the Nintendo, or maybe you had some ports on the back, like a coax cable or the RCA cables you'd plug something into, and then that would appear in a particular place. But the TV itself was the primary device. Well, that's not the case anymore. TVs now are really a hub for other services and devices. So you turn your TV on, but you're not watching your TV. I mean, you are in the literal sense. The image is on the TV, but what you're watching is not a function of the TV. It's a media center. So you're going to pull up Netflix or YouTube or Hulu or Roku or you're going to pull up an entertainment device like a receiver that it's attached to, or a video game system that has the video game or even secondary applications on it. The TV is no longer, you don't turn on the TV, go to a channel and watch TV. You turn on the TV, it is a hub for all of the entertainment devices in your house. You then get to the particular input that you want or the particular app that you want and then that's what you're actually consuming the tv is just the output for it a tv now is closer to the monitor for a computer than it is a classic tv from the 1980s 90s whatever i think of it more like it's a phone with apps yes only it's a big screen precisely yeah yeah i i look at it as a monitor but i think a phone with apps is a fair way of looking at it but it's a pass through to other things. It is not the beginning and end of what you're trying to consume. Now, what is my point? My point is that if I look at my, or someone like my dad, not just him, but I've seen it with other people, they really struggle to figure out how to use the TV because their mind has lost its flexibility. And so the choice at some point to have a favorite restaurant, a favorite brand of car, a favorite this, a favorite that, a declining interest in new experiences, instead going back to your tried and true stuff and why can't things be the way they used to and so on and so forth, he has reached a point where at the neurological level, it is nearly impossible, if not arguably impossible, for him to adapt to the changes in the world, the changes in technology, to stay abreast of these things. And so he's sort of a man out of time. And I don't mean out of time like he's about to die. I mean he's a man out of the context of his own time. Yeah. Like like Captain America when yes. he first got out of the, came into modern times. Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. My dad, to take this to an extreme standpoint, he has never touched a computer. He has a flip phone and was so upset that they didn't want to give him another flip phone. But they managed to find a model of flip phone that they could do for him. Doesn't have apps or anything on it. Has never touched a laptop or a computer. The only thing with like a screen that he deals with was ATMs. And he has zero desire to learn any of it and refuses to learn any of it. Yeah, Yeah. and I would wager has a declining, if not utterly deceased, 
ability to do so. And this is a growing field of neurology, but it doesn't take a whole lot to find evidence of these things Mm -hmm. and to find how, especially as you get older, look, life is somewhat circular. You kind of end where you begin. You come into the world helpless and struggling and And in diapers and then you leave right in diapers. Yeah. And yeah. And similarly at the start of life, it's really important to have new experiences, to hear languages, to learn new things, to develop those abilities to think. And you can kind of coast through the middle of your life because that's just the way you are. You're fairly open to new things, but by the end of life, it's back to being a somewhat conscious, deliberate, difficult effort to keep your mind flexible, to have those new experiences, to go new places, to learn new things. And this is what I don't want to become. And in my case, it's work. Wayne, in your case, it's play. But we are effectively kind of looping around to that same spot. Well, and I think we're both concerned about the person we will be when we get older. Yeah. I gotta give Nintendo credit for this. When the Wii came out and everyone is freaking out because it is such drastically different, you know, you're not holding a controller, you're holding a remote and sh- shaking it. You wanna know one of the places they marketed it? Nursing homes. Nursing, yeah. homes. Nursing homes. Yes. Because of Brain Age and some of these other games. Yeah. And they successfully got people that otherwise would have zero interest in a console. Suddenly learning it. Yeah, and I don't know how many people listening to the show remember the release of the Wii and what that was like in the first year it's out. My mom played video games with me. Yeah, and that was not a thing that at the time was going on. That is the social moment where that shifted, where people who would not touch video games because of age, because of culture, because of just lack of interest, those people were suddenly picking up and becoming avid video gamers, but they were doing Wii Bowling. It was their jam now, right? And then maybe some of them picked up phone apps or Words with Friends or Candy Crush or whatever, but people that had never before been video gamers suddenly became video gamers because of the novelty of the metaphor. Yeah. If you want to keep your brain active into old age, you have to keep challenging yourself and you have to keep pushing yourself mentally into areas that you may not be comfortable with. Yeah. And experiences you don't even want. And that's what's got me thinking about it is I realize that in a lot of ways I'm avoiding some of that now. Yeah. And I realize it because I reached a point in my life where I had a lot of stress and suddenly. I didn't want to watch a challenging movie or read a challenging book. I still was very interested in technology and science. And so I was expanding my mind in those ways. But the mental thought processes, the philosophy, things like that, I wanted just entertainment. Yeah. I only had so much free time. And so I wanted to spend that time on something that was entertaining and not something that was going to put mental stress on myself and i think now i'm realizing that's kind of let me become down the path to become something i don't want to be yeah that's something that i haven't noticed at the most recent fear the con is now i there are some other things going on in my personal life that kind of pulled me away from the convention which the 
I'm hoping this will not be three years in a row. So I'm hoping on the next one that I'll <laughs> not have another bit of issue where I have to drop out. Hey, my dad went into the hospital weeknight two years in a row. I know. <laughs> and at least this year I was able to complete everything that I was responsible for. I didn't have a neurological issue that pulled me away to where I couldn't speak. So anyway, point being, though, that one thing I didn't do at Fear of the Con this year that I normally try to do is play at least one game I've never played before. Whether it's a new system, old system, it just has to be new to me. Right. I I played GURPS for the first time I mean, maybe a decade ago, and that game's been around a whole lot longer than a decade ago. That's a game that goes back to the 80s. And that was the first time I had ever played GURPS. It was new to me. And I did not have that experience of the most recent Fear of the Con I wish I had. But I just went on a somewhat short trip, not related to gaming, just personal thing. And while I was on the plane, I didn't have anything else to do because I was flying by myself. And so I busted out a game that I think was first published what, 2012, 2013? That sounds right. And then had a re-release where they updated and modified some things in 2019. So I was reading the 2019 version. And the game I'm referring to is a game some of you are probably going to be quite familiar with called The Quiet Year. And what The Quiet Year is about is it's a collaborative storytelling game. Very loose rules. Very light rules. Really, I mean, it's not like you just totally make up everything. The game does guide you, but the game really creates a system and a series of prompts to get you to take it in places that they could not have foreseen you would go. And the setup of it is is that you are in some kind of environment. And this could be anything. It could be a space station, a logging camp, a coastal city, you can think of it, you can play it. doesn't matter, era of history. You could be a bunch of sapient dinosaurs trying to survive a meteor impact. It doesn't matter. But it starts off with something bad just happened. And you have three seasons. You have spring, summer, fall to basically try and sort out your situation. And then when winter hits... The cards are shuffled, so you don't know when, but somewhere during winter, another catastrophe will occur that ends the game. The frost giants arrive. Yeah. The frost giants are not defined. (laughs) Nowhere in the book does it say what a frost giant is. And part of the fun for me when playing the game is figuring out what the frost giants are for this setting. And it doesn't explain either how it started. The first catastrophe is you just got rid of, I think, what they call the jackals. You just got yeah. rid of the, and what are the jackals? It does not explain it. And the you, whole catch line, the reason it's called the quiet year is you've just gone through this horrible period and now it is quiet for a year. Yeah, you have, you one, have a year to rebuild. And you don't, it, it's, the game does not even tell you, does your society survive the bookending event? That's for you to decide. It, it does not tell you. There's no mechanic to determine it. You just play the quiet year between those two bookends. Catastrophe A, Catastrophe B. Here's the quiet year in the middle. Yeah, and I will throw out one thing that you, you didn't mention. The way I described the game is a map-making role-playing game. 
I think that's a fair way because well, the, whole, the whole point of it is while you're doing this, you are drawing things yeah. on a map. And you are also setting building. And I don't know it's a topic I want to get into here because this isn't really what we're talking about. But I think it's a great way to develop a setting. And when you hit that end event, just stop talking about what happens beyond here. No frost thingies arrive. It's just when it represents where the game begins. And then take this setting and now here's a collaborative setting you've built that you can play in your role-playing game. Yeah, For example, I've, Doug, in our West Marches game, we could have used the quiet year, and it's not a year. It represents mm-hmm. several centuries of what happened in the Vetchland. And that would be how we would tell that story, and that's where we would then begin the story of our characters is at the end of the quiet year, which in this case would be a couple centuries. Yeah, I know okay. I've said on the show how much I want to do that at some point. If run it and then run a campaign. I bought this game back when it came out. Oh, I bought it around the same time when uh, I bought Penny for My Thoughts. Yeah. And I never played it. I read it. I thought it was really cool. It was only last year that I finally played it for the first time. Yeah. And I've played it like four or five times since then. Well, I loved it. And game. I was thinking, even for the actual play we're working on now... We could use this as a way of developing the ship that you guys are on. Or several of the characters are all from one particular planet where there used to be a series of computers and robots that ran the place. And it was sort of this uh, Greek philosopher's society. And this could be used to describe what happened on that world between two points in time. And I've, I've thought about ways that I could use this. The other book I had with me is the current edition of the MechWarrior role-playing game called Destiny. And Destiny has not only a role-playing system. So in Battletech, there's, I guess, three ways of doing combat. One is to do the full Battletech map combat in all of its detailed glory, which takes hours to play out, but is a really fun game to play. The second version is Alpha Strike, which is a quick-play version. And then the third version is Destiny, which they just introduced in this RPG, which allows for a narrative version of the map combat. So you can describe it. And I, how does it work? I don't know. I didn't get to reading that book because I was reading The Quiet Year on the way down and on the way back was talking to someone and so did not read Destiny. So I have no opinion on it at this point. But what struck me was these are the first new games I have looked at over the past couple years. Outside of homebrews, these are the first new game systems I've looked at in a couple years. And Wayne, we've certainly been in agreement that this is a bad idea, and it it pretends bad things for our long-term neurological and psychological development that it can set you up for a somewhat difficult or devoided, a lower in value end of life because, and not that once again, not that we're, I realize this sounds so morose, but you got to think about the long term, right? You got to think there's a reason I have a 401k. It's not because I'm retiring tomorrow, but I am going to retire someday. And so I, I'm thinking about those things. You think about the long term. 
And Wayne, you and I, and Doug, I don't know how you're at in your life with this, but we've reached a point where for me, it's career for you. It's hobby. We've realized we are on the brink of falling into that chasm and need to make a conscious effort to start building a bridge to not do so. One thing that I did during the, uh, the pandemic is that I like took up different hobbies and stuff. Yeah. Like for one thing I did like Olympic weightlifting for a little while. And then I did, uh, Italian sword fighting and stuff. I think you just gotta sometimes just jump in and just pick something. Yeah. Watch and, a TV series yeah. you wouldn't normally watch. When I was younger, I used to have collect hobbies basically. Yeah. And I can't think of the last time I picked up a new hobby. Yeah, Chad said that about me, that I went through a phase of my life, and it was a long phase. It was a 10, 20-year phase, probably closer to 20 years, where my hobby was collecting hobbies. Yeah. And I didn't pursue most of them, but I get interested in them for a little bit, and I haven't done that in a long time. Now, I want to check something here, though, because, Wayne, I wonder if part of this is we're going to do some uh, blame-storming. Okay. Because this is the most important part of anything is not solving the problem. It's figuring out who to blame. Okay. I blame Chad because he's not here. Well, you know what? (laughs) I don't know that I blame Chad specifically, but I do to some extent blame both the availability of and the nature of my gaming groups. And I'll put myself in this to some extent, Not, not as much as other people, but you know, but I will nonetheless, I will include myself in this to some extent. At some point, did you stop buying, reading, and learning new systems because you weren't using them anyway? No, because I still buy frequently. Really? Okay. Because at no. some point, like I'm sitting here right now with, I got an edition of Shadowrun here that I think was the fifth edition. Yeah, fifth edition. And I don't think that's the current edition. I think they're on like a sixth or seventh edition now. I don't even know. Now, why do I not even know? Because here's fifth edition. I've never read fifth edition. Because, well, actually, I can blame Chad here, because Chad absolutely (laughs) refuses to play this game. And so I bought it. I was pumped to run it. We had a lot. And even Chad will admit, we had some outstanding Shadowrun games. We had some really good campaigns. And yet, for some reason, I think it's because he prefers hard sci-fi cyberpunk. He is dead set against it and would not allow me to run it. And I'm not going to blame him for all of them. I'm just picking on him with this one. And so I never read this book, and because I never read it, I never ran it, and because I never ran it, I hit a point where it's not to say I don't buy any new gaming products, but I don't buy nearly as many as I used to because there are both board games and role-playing games on my shelf that I am dying to play that I cannot get someone to play with me, either A, because they're unwilling, or B, more often than unwilling, just because of how complex scheduling is and we've already yeah. got games we're playing, we just don't get around to it. I bought a board game version of this war of mine. I love the video game. I'm excited to see how the board game plays. I have never touched it. That's why I quit buying board games. Like I used to buy all kinds of board games. I completely stopped buying board games because I know I won't get to play them. Yeah. If I have you know, time to play something... It's usually time to play the weekly role-playing game. Yeah, exactly. And that's it. Exactly. It's my weekly D&D West Marches game, or if we can ever get our stuff together, getting back to the AP, 
which the AP will probably run for some number of months or even maybe a couple of years. I mean, Skies of Glass went three and a half years. And we're going to be playing, once again, a relatively small number of products for a long period of time. And so why bother sitting down and learning a game or paying for a game when I'm probably never going to touch it? And if I do, it will be after so long there's going to be a new edition. This one's going to be unsupported. And I'll have forgotten it all anyway. And so to some extent, now, this doesn't mean I can't explore this in other areas of my life. Maybe there's value in learning a game I never play, or there's a booming market, or I shouldn't say booming, there's a budding market, would be a better way of putting it, of solo games. Maybe I should start picking some of those up Because maybe just challenging myself to learn and play these solo games is necessary to preserving the health of my brain and my ability to interact with people. But we were talking about this with Gen Con because we sat down and we were like curious about some of the things that happened at Gen Con. To what extent did WotC get broadsided by people who were pretty pissed off about all the nonsense they've pulled over the past year or two? But when it got to the product questions of, well, what big games were released, we all had about the same reaction of none of us really even care. And that's kind of messed up. I mean, that's really messed up, to be honest. I'll be honest. Most of the things I buy now game-wise are from a crowdfunder. Yeah, it's Kickstarter. All of the, it's not even just Kickstarter at this point, because like Pinnacle has their own uh, Game Changer. Is what they call theirs. But it's always something either through a Kickstarter or a Game Changer or one of those. Most of what I buy off of Kickstarter is either artwork that I consume by myself, where it's just artwork for my ownership, or it's video games I'm going to play by myself. It's not role-playing games. It's not board games. It's, It's things that I consume by myself. I think I realized at what point it is for me for games. Because I thought about when I getting ready to run my current Dresden Files campaign. Why did I go to Dresden Files? Because I had a lot going on in my life and I was stressed and I didn't want to go and read through a a new book. Like I'm reading through them, I find them interesting, but that's not the same as learning a system. Right. And then I still have to go back and reference it. I have run Dresden Files so much at this point, I don't need to reference the book. I just can go. And because of that, to me, it was my comfort zone. I even said it at the time. It's like, well, if I'm going to run something now, I want it to be something that's kind of in my comfort zone. That makes sense because when you're like having a rough time, you know, the last thing you want to do is create more chaos, try and learn something new. So you stick into something that you already knew, you know, that that's makes sense. Yeah. And except I've reached the point where I've realized that's always going to be the case. There is always going to be chaos. Yeah. There is always going to be bad times happening. And if I let myself go that easy route, like I've been doing, then I'm not going to be challenging myself because I will always have something horrible that's going on. This is where I'm at creatively in general. And I'm focusing on the creative partially because that's what the show is about, but also because things like work, I don't have a choice. I don't work. I don't get paid. I don't get paid. I don't have a place to live and food to eat. Okay, that's just life. So you force yourself to do that. Creativity is a choice, especially because of the fact that's not what we do for a living. And we've always said this show loses money, and that's fine. I don't care. I'm not here to whine about that. 
we do this because we enjoy it, but you can cut the things you enjoy. You can't cut the things you have to do. And throughout all of my life, my life has worked the way you expect life to do. It's had ups and downs. It's had chaotic periods and calm periods. I'm like you, Wayne. I've come to accept my reality changed. Let's say three years ago, things went down. Things have stayed down. They are not coming back up. Maybe they will. I hope someday they do. But this is the longest unbroken period of absolute depressing, unfun chain of problems, other obligations, crises, either in my life, someone else's, usually both. And either I'm going to refuse to keep giving into that and just say, you know what, I'm going to do this anyway. I'm going to make this a priority or I'm going to stay down and do nothing. But either way you crack it, life's just going to be chaos. It's going to be busy. And I can either give into that and let my mind become this rigid, unmovable, not just get off my lawn, but get off my lawn. And I don't want to touch that newfangled thing. <laughs> whether that's a game or whether that's a TV, or I can choose to say, you know what, I'm going to start learning new things. And I, we were, I hate to drag this on, but my closing thought here is we were talking about a YouTube show that Wayne and I have both become addicted to called the Y files. <laughs> and one of the things he was talking about, the guy that makes the Y files, a guy named AJ, or at least that's the pseudonym he goes by. I don't know what his real name is. We'll, we'll assume that's his real name. One of the things AJ was talking about is how when he first got started, he wanted to make long-form videos, which he does. But the only way he found to get his show jump-started and to keep people going to it was to make the short-form, one-minute TikTok slash shorts slash reels slash whatever name you want to give them, depending on your platform, because that's how people were going to consume his stuff, find him, and then go watch the big shows. Yeah, he even said, as I was watching that episode, it wasn't the people, it wasn't his audience. The people that came in were not the ones that were going to necessarily stick around. But you got to break the YouTube algorithm to get the people to see. Yeah, to raise his relevance. Yeah. And that's something that we've been looking at, too, is as we try to figure out how to adapt and evolve the show both to changes in our lives, but also to changes in the world and the way people consume media is okay. Do we need to start looking at some of these up and coming things that to us are just irritating, newfangled crap, dumb kids do, or do we need to not become that person and say, Hey, we need to either adapt or we need to go extinct. And I'm opting to adapt and there's some things we're working on that I don't want to overpromise, underdeliver. under deliver. We do that too much as it is, but I don't want to become that person. And so there's really no advice to this show, which is why I'm going to classify it as a bonus episode. But if I had any advice, it'd be, Hey, pick up something new. Even if you're not going to play it, at least learn it, see how things are done. And maybe you'll find ideas you could use in your main game. And if not, well, at least there's the value there of having explored other ways of doing things and having stretched your mind a little bit. So I'm going to fight my own curmudgeonness with probably the next Fear of the Con will be the first opportunity to do it. I dislike cyberpunk. I always have. I have never played a cyberpunk game. I just dislike the genre. 
So I am going to go out of my way to find a Shadowrun game or a something else to sign up for and play a one-shot in to pull myself out of my comfort zone because I have a lot of opinions on something I've never personally tried. Yeah. I think Eclipse Phase might be a bit too much for you, but in general, I think you're on the right track. (laughs) I think Eclipse Phase may be a bridge too far for you, but I think that's a bridge too far for me. But anyway, thank you guys for tuning in. As always, have a great week and great games, and we will catch you next time. We'll be right back.